You can probably tell by my voice that I, um, I'm uh, getting over some sickness right now and uh, trying, to, trying to work through that. So I got my tea up here, which is helpful. And uh, so I think I might actually just start doing this regularly. Uh, it's just cool, right? I mean, come on. Um, so, so let me tell you, uh, we have been in this uh, good initiative uh, for quite some time now. We had our first you know, big pledge weekend about three weeks ago, and I wanna tell you the progress in the last three weeks and where we are right now. Let me, let me just give you some context because numbers really don't make any sense, especially if you're new here. Numbers don't really make any sense unless you give context to it. And so uh, 2021, uh, we had a giving that was right around $7 million, right? Uh, now, what you need to know about Grace is that we have doubled in size uh, pretty quickly uh, over the last uh, year or so. So we had about $7 million in receipts over the last, um, in, in 2021. So now, as we kind of jump into this, uh, we did this thing, right? And basically what we're doing is we're placing uh, this, this building that was next door to us right now is now belongs to Grace because the wonderful people of Circle Community Church donated that building to us and uh, totally free and uh, with, with 25,000 square feet with uh, six acres uh, of, um, of property as well. And we're turning that into the Teaching and Healing Center at Grace. We're gonna have a counseling center over there. We're gonna have all kinds of programs over there. It's gonna be amazing. The counseling center, once we're done with it, will be one of the largest counseling centers in Central Florida. Listen, we're not about counseling per se. We're not about just like, you know, counseling as the great hope. What we're doing is we have Christian counselors there that are pointing people to Jesus because Jesus is our hope. And what we believe is that just what you exactly know, and that is this, that your friends and you sometimes, we're broken. And we need some direction, wisdom, and counsel that can lead us to taking our next step toward Christ. And that's our whole goal here. You're never sitting still. You're always either becoming more like Jesus or less like Jesus. And we want to be people who move towards God and become more like him. So here's what we're doing. We're also working on a building for the Oviedo campus, which has grown significantly in itself. And uh, there are, are uh, a ton of people over there at this elementary school, and uh, we're trying to pr- prepare the way for them to find a facility. So here's what we've done. Originally, we kind of put out a number. It was $25 million. And so some of you saw that early on in some of the stakeholder events. And, uh, and then I started preaching about what Kelly and I do in our own personal finances. And we, what we do is we come up to what we call the line of reasonability right here, right? So, so the line of what's reasonable, what you can do, all right? And we go, this is, this is what we can do. This is reasonable. But we don't just stop right there. We take one large step, right? Not a small step. Why not a small step? Because that's, I mean, that's kind of worthless. That's not, there's, there's nothing helpful about a small step. It doesn't increase your faith. It doesn't increase your trust. A big step, though, is helpful. 10 steps, unhelpful, because it's foolish, right? So what we do is we do this. And so we put out that goal of 25 million, and then we're sitting around the table, and I'm like, you know what, guys? I feel like we can, I feel like this was reasonable. Like 25 million is reasonable for us. Why don't we just take another big step? And then we put $30 million down, which was reasonably insane. And, uh, and we said, let's, let's, just, let's just do this and trust the Lord. Because I've taught something around here for years, that when we show up, God shows up right? What that means basically is that when you show up in your marriage, God wants you to show up in life. When you show up in your marriage, your marriage is better. When you show up in your business, your business is better. When you show up in the church, the church is better. It just makes sense. So what's happened? You showed up in a powerful way. You ready to see what we have over the last three weeks? All right, here it is.
I mean, come on. That's crazy. By the way, by the way, that's crazy, right? By the way, that was a hurricane when we started it, a hurricane when we ended it, the economy going crazy. The devil was just like, nah. And then Jesus was like, "Uh uh-huh, right? So God just showed up. And let me just say this, guys. When we were sacrificial, when we are sacrificial, man, that's just, that makes a difference. And, and what it shows is the heart of those who are bought in and invested in grace. We care a ton about other people. Let me show you some other statistics that are just super helpful. Listen, almost 450 households, right? 450 households are new givers to grace this year. New givers to grace. Yeah, you should celebrate that. That's a big thing. And, and almost all of that was brand new from the, the Good Initiative. Now, here's the one that really just blows my mind. Uh, of those of you who made commitments prior to this, or like we're giving before this, you increased your giving an average of 75% across all of our campuses, Winter Garden, Oviedo, and Orlando. That is just incredible. So I want to celebrate this with you. Watch this. This fall, we set out on a journey together to do good, expect the good, and proclaim the good. We launched something big called the Good Initiative. It's been a defining season for us at Grace, one where God has called us to dream bigger and surrender ourselves to Him. I believe that God is raising up Grace right now for the purpose of being a place of teaching and healing for those who are hurting in Central Florida. I believe that the way that we spread the gospel best is not screaming at people, I believe that we share the gospel best by showing the world a more beautiful story of who God is. We've never seen people challenged in biblical generosity like we've seen during the Good Initiative. People have given for the first time. People have stretched their faith further than it's ever gone. And families have sacrificed for the kingdom of God. We believe that God is doing things right now that we'll be talking about for years to come in Orlando, in Oviedo, Winter Garden, and beyond. It feels good to be a part of what Grace is doing. The, the, the mission here is uh, something that really resonates with us and our family and has been, um, has been really powerful. So being able to be a part of that is uh, honestly feels like a privilege more than anything. We all have such an incredible opportunity to trust God and sacrifice our time and our money and let him work through us so that more people can be pointed to Jesus for healing. Through the Good Initiative, we've learned so much about the priorities that God has for grace and for our city and how we can be a part of it. We've learned how to trust Him with all that we have and all that we are. We even learned a thing or two about big-hearted generosity through our kids and students. Grace Kids has helped me grow by learning that we have the stuff to give to other people who need it. By committing to this and by putting all my faith in Him that He'll bring me through, everything that I'm going through and everything that I will go through, I feel like this is a way of me saying I'm going to trust God for all my life. Our primary goal of the Good Initiative is still 100% engagement. We want everyone to be part of it because we want everyone to know they had a part in making God's mission happen here at Grace. We also want people to really know what it looks like to take a step of faith, to trust God in a big way and watch Him show up in their everyday lives. Our secondary goal was a crazy dream. We thought, what number's possible? And then we took an extra step of faith. That faith is going to change so many lives in the next few years. What you give to the Good Initiative is going to help the day-to-day ministry of grace keep serving people in the name of Jesus. But it's gonna do so much more. 
The Good Initiative is going to bring more people to our team to help people take their next steps towards Christ. And it's going to increase our capacity for teaching, for counseling, for serving others, for families, and for sharing the gospel across our city. It's going to give us new spaces to see lives changed and families healed. It's going to expand our footprint in the city to be a place of hope for people who are hurting. We can't wait to see people find God in new places. To me, it's so exciting to look at the future of a church that already has so much in place. You're encouraged to take your next steps and you're given help and people are there to support you. But in addition to that now, there's going to be a counseling center and a learning center that can help with all those areas that happen outside of church. It's just a vision that cares for people deeply. I'm super excited for what is in store for Grace. Hopefully we can be the beacon for Orlando. I feel like Grace, we know that we are a bunch of broken people, but we love each other and we continue to strive to um, build each other up and just take steps closer and closer uh, to God each and every day. Grace, you've been showing up for almost 20 years to help people take their next steps toward Christ. I can't wait to see what we'll do together in the next two years. You did this, Grace. You gave so that good would be ahead. Amen. Amen. All right, so our primary, our primary goal, uh, this, that was the secondary goal, the $30 million primary goal is 100% engagement. I want to encourage you. If you have not yet done it, there are still some who've said, you know what, we're still trying to work out our finances, and we still have gifts coming in. The number that you saw up there, Last night, we had a bunch more come in, so that's not even accurate. It's just further on down the road. So God has been good, and we're going to be able to use that money to affect lives to be changed and transformed with the hope of the gospel. All right, well, let's uh, jump into our scriptures right now, okay? So we're going to be looking at John 1 today, and uh, we're going to look at verses 1, 14 through 17, and uh, a couple other verses. Now, uh, as we look at the nature of who Jesus is, last week, we talked a lot about the divinity of Jesus. And what we said about Jesus is that he's unique among all of, uh, um, all of humanity. He is fully God and fully man. And because of that, in theology, it's called the hypostatic union of Christ. Fully God, fully man. Um, and he needed to be fully God and fully man. Why? Because he needed to be able to understand us and not just be some distant sky God that couldn't understand what we were going through, the challenges that we were having. He needed to be like us. So he became flesh for us right, in doing so. And then also he needed to be different enough from us so that we would be able to have someone who could rescue us, somebody who could help us through life. So I'm gonna read through the whole text and then uh, we'll come back and look at it verse by verse. John chapter one, verse 14 starts like this. The word, <coughs> excuse me, I'm gonna be doing that through the sermon. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one that I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's go to verse 14. All right. So one of the things that's really unique about, uh, about John is, and I told you last week that John is uh, probably Jesus's best friend. He said that his, Jesus' words were, uh, John is the disciple that I love the most, right? Um, and it's interesting because John is very smart. Uh, he's writing to a um, Greek and Jewish culture, a Hellenistic culture, 
and he's using some ideas from their history to help them understand. And it's a beautiful picture. Why? Because he starts with where they are and then teaches them all about God. And I think as you and I talk and think about how we talk about God in the world, we do just that. We start where others are and we paint the more beautiful story of who Jesus is for them. Because we have the best story, the greatest hero, the best outcome of any story on the planet. So this is what he does. He takes this idea of Lagos, right? Which was a concept that for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years in Greek culture was a concept that basically meant the highest reason, the force behind all of creation. In fact, let's take a look at what this, uh, the Lexham Bible Dictionary says about it. What is the Lagos? An eternal and unchanging truth present from the time of creation. Now, what you need to know is that this was an impersonal force in the mind of a Greek. It wasn't someone you prayed to. It wasn't a God. It was just the power behind the universe, right? And so an internal unchanging truth present from the time of creation, available to every individual who seeks it, a unifying and liberating uh, revelatory force, which reconciles the human with the divine, manifested in the world as an act of God's love in the form of Christ. And this right here, this part right here is what John did. He connected the idea of this logos. Let's go back to the verse. <coughs> he connected this idea of the logos with the person of Jesus. So this is a lot like when you're talking to your friends and you say something like, you know this hole inside your heart that you've been constantly trying to fill with whatever it is, materialism, materialism sexuality, whatever it is. You know this hole that you have in your heart? This hole can only be filled by Jesus. You're connecting need with God. And that's what John's doing here. He's connecting with need with God. So he says, you guys all know that this is the power behind the universe. Let me tell you his name. His name is Jesus. And it's interesting because he says here that Jesus became flesh. Um, this, this phrase became flesh, it, it means that Jesus is not just an idea or a principle. He's not a philosophy. Here, here's what happened right after the resurrection of Jesus. There were some, peop- there were some people and teachers that came into the church afterwards and said, Jesus wasn't really a real person. Now remember, we don't have the internet. We don't have mass media. So really, it's just what every person believes from town to town. So these teachers came and said, you guys got it all wrong. Jesus wasn't a person. He was an idea. He was a principle. It was do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? It was a kind of boiling down of Jesus as a spirit. So what John does here is he actually uses technical terms here to say, no, no, no. Jesus was not an idea. He was actually flesh and blood. And I want you to hear some of the early church fathers when they write the Apostles' Creed. I want you to listen to when, the, when it picks up with the part of Jesus, it becomes very physical. There's physicality in the language, right? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, rooted him in time, space, right? Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and then we buried him. So all of that is not something that a principle would have done to them or an idea. This is a real person. So he connects this, this principle of Jesus with the real person of Jesus who came. He became flesh. And then he made his dwelling among us. He made his dwelling among us. This is the Greek word skeno, right? Skeno. And the word skeno would, if you were a Jewish person, you didn't know immediately what it meant. Of course, we're generally not. So this is what it means. Skeno was used to describe the tabernacle in the Old Testament. You see, the concept of God dwelling among us is not just when Jesus happened. It's not the first time it happened. It happened other times. We had, we had, we had God dwell with us in the fire when the burning bush was blazing 
and Abraham was there. He dwelt among us. We had it in the tabernacle of the Old Testament where they built this building that God told them to build. And then God said, I'm gonna dwell there. I'm gonna put my spirit inside. It dwell, God dwelled inside the temple later in Jerusalem in the Holy of Holies. So he's come down and been among us a lot. But in the person of Jesus, he dwells among us differently. And so what they would know is that the skino, right, that would point to the tabernacle. And that point would be this. Just as God lived in a real building, he dwelt in real flesh and he was among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only begotten. Uh, monogenesis is the word behind the one and only. And sometimes like in your, it's not a great translation, uh, King James often is, is not just because of the Elizabethan language, but just some bad translations. For some of you who are older, you memorized, you know, God's only begotten son, right? But that begotten idea is not exactly the right idea here. But this is, this is this, what, it, what it means is one and only, one and the same. So we have seen the glory, the glory of the one and same son. One and same with what? One and same with the father. One and same with the father who came from the father full of grace and truth. So just in this first verse, we see some pretty extraordinary things about him. That Jesus became flesh. We talked about the idea last week that people asked me the question, where was I before I was conceived? And the answer is nowhere. You were nowhere. You were in the mind of God. You were an idea in his heart. But before that, you weren't. God himself, Jesus himself, was actually with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit, Father and Holy Spirit, forever and ever before the creation and invention of the universe, right? So they've lived together prior to that. But look at this. Why does this matter? I mean, what does it matter that Jesus was like us? It matters because he understands you. He understands the hard things that you've gone through. In fact, let's take a look at that. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Hey, let's pause here for a second. As a counselor, the difference between empathy and sympathy, sympathy is when you look at someone and go, that stinks. How terrible for you, how awful for you. And you kind of just, you know, you, you look at the situation, you can objectively look at it and you can go, wow, that's a terrible situation. Empathy's different. Empathy is when you put yourself in the place of the other person and experience it from their vantage point. So what this is saying is, for we do not have a high priest. This is Jesus, the high priest, right? We do not have a high priest who is unable to look at it from our point of view. And this is one of the great things that God has done for us in Jesus, is he's able to look at it from your perspective. So when you're depressed and you're anxious and you're fearful and you're worried and you're angry and you don't know what to do with it, you need to know he can see it from your perspective. He understands it from your perspective, but not just does he see it. Watch this, this is even crazier. But, <clears throat> but we have one, that's Jesus, one, but we have Jesus who has been tempted in every way, just as you are, yet without sin, yet did not sin. Now, this is one of the most powerful parts of the entire gospel. Why? Because it shows us that Jesus not only can empathize and see what you're going through from your perspective, but he was also tempted to struggle with the same things you struggle with. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes I feel like it's more, it's easier to think about God as God, not as human. Thinking about Jesus as tempted kind of freaks me out a little bit, right? Because I think for some of us, we think, well, maybe what, what happens if he gave into that temptation? Well, we see that he didn't. He was without sin. And that's a really, really important part of this whole equation. But he was tempted in every way, which means this, because some people will say, well, he was God, so he couldn't sin. So it made it easier for him. No, it made it worse for him. Why? Because when you and I are tempted, when you and I go through like 
grand temptations, we have a tendency to just take the short road of sin and to relieve ourselves of the pressure or the worry or the stress or the whatever. We'd have a tendency to relieve ourselves and just move on. Jesus endured every temptation all the way to the very end of the temptation and did not sin. But he was tempted in every way that we are. You see, what makes Jesus different than an impersonal force like the Lagos that the Greeks believed in or what the Greek gods were for the Greeks was that he actually can see it from your perspective. And so what you need to know is that he's not distant and ambivalent about you. He's actually present with you all the time. And when you suffer, it hurts him. When you suffer and go through terrible things, it's challenging. He feels it from your perspective. He's not distantly watching you and uninvolved. You know what? When we show up, God shows up. But you know what? God shows up all the time. He is always with you, no matter how bad things get, no matter how afraid you are. He understands it from your perspective, and he loves you without condition. Now watch this. This is, this is important. But he is different than us, and it's important for him to be different uh, from us. Why? Well, because you and I are really good, and our culture is really good at this. Is a part of this is psychology. <coughs> We're really good at diagnosing problems, right? Oh, he's a narcissist. Uh, she is codependent. We're really good at putting labels on things and we're really good at diagnosing things, but sometimes we're not real good with the solutions. And sometimes you, even internally, with the struggle with yourself, go, I know, I know what this is wrong. I know that I'm struggling, but I don't know how to stop. You see, if we just had one who was like us, he would be like us. He wouldn't be able to provide solutions for us. He would just be broken like us. But Jesus, being fully God and fully man, he has the solutions because he never sinned. And we'll come back to that in a second. But he didn't sin. And as a result of that, he has the opportunity to give us solutions. Look at this. Hebrews 1.3. The son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful logos. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. Look at this. One day the disciples are having a discussion with Jesus. And I think it's Philip off the top of my head. But Philip comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, when are you going to show us the Father, the invisible God up in heaven? When are you going to show us the Father? And Jesus gets visibly frustrated. He's like, come on, man. When you've seen me, don't you know that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Don't you get that? What What is he saying? Well, he's, look at this. The sun is the radiance. This is the beauty, the goodness, the majesty of God's glory. He's God. And watch this. He is the exact representation of his being. So when you've seen Jesus act in an ethical situation, that is exactly how the father would act in that ethical situation. When you've seen him in a merciful situation, that is exactly how the father would act in a merciful situation. He was the perfect and is the perfect image, image representation of uh, in, in the Old Testament, this is the word uh, icon, right? The Greek, I'm sorry, in the Greek, it's icon, representation of, gee, he's just like him. And this being, he's of the exact same stuff, substance as the father. And sometimes people get like, how, do, how does that whole three-in-one thing work together? We talked a little bit about it. This is a flawed illustration, but maybe it'll get you just one step further. Father, son, and Holy Spirit. It's one God and three persons. I am one guy, but I am a father, a brother, and a son. 
And I operate differently in all three of those relationships, but I'm still one. I have three different things going on in my life, just as you do probably, but I'm still one, right? Now, when you look at this, the sun is the, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of being. So when you see Jesus doing something, you've seen the Father. That's what he's saying to the disciples. He's like, guys, you've seen me. And look at what Jesus is doing. He's sustaining all things by his powerful logos. His power is what sustains the universe. His power is what's causing the synapses in my brain to fire right now. His power is what's causing my heartbeat to continue right now. He is everything that keeps everything going. That's why last week we talked about him as being at the point of creation. After he had provided purification for sins, this is why he came, guys. This is everything right here. So let me tell you what happens on the cross. Because a lot of you guys are Christians, but you don't know what happened on the cross. Like you're like, yeah, I totally get it. Like I'm saved by Jesus, but what does that mean? Well, there's two things that happen. We talked about him that's sinless. And in order for him to be sinless, or in order for him to be able to fix our problem, he had to be sinless. And here's what happened. Here's Jesus on the cross, right? And he's about to die. And he holds out his arms, right? You know, he's, he's, on, he's on the cross. And he's about to die. And they die of suffocation eventually. They're constantly pushing themselves up on this. It's brutally painful. But interesting, interestingly enough, there's nothing unique about the death that Jesus actually endured. I think for many of us, when we think of, because we're a media culture, whenever we think of Jesus' suffering, we think of like the passion of the Christ or something like that, where these terrible beatings took place. And they did. He physically endured terrible things. But what you need to know is even on the very same day in which Jesus died, there were two other guys who endured the same kind of beatings and died the same kind of death. Crucifixion was a Roman common everyday occurrence. It was where murderers and thieves, this is why Jesus placed on the cross the perfect sinless lamb of God was brutalized by Rome because he died a thief, he died a murderer, he died a prisoner's death. But on the cross, there is Jesus outstretched right now. He's about to die. And he screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think this is the worst moment and suffering that Jesus endured. Physical pain, sure, but you could endure the same kind of physical pain that Jesus endured. But what you couldn't endure is what, he just ha- what just happened to him. In that moment, the father's face turns away from Jesus. And from that moment, Jesus is all alone for the very first time in his life. And I don't know how to explain the three in one thing and how that works. Don't know, no one does. But in that moment, he turns away from the, fa- the father, turns away from Jesus. Why? Because Jesus took upon the sin of mankind and all of its history upon himself in that moment. He needed to be enough like us that it would matter that he was sacrificed, but he needed to be so different from us that he had to be able to provide the solution. And he took upon himself all of your sin. And you know what he did after that? He gave you his righteousness, his sinless life. So when people say salvation is not earned, that's garbage. It was 100% earned by Jesus. His sinless life earned the credit necessary for him to say, I will give you all of my righteousness. And all I ask in in return is for you to give me all of your garbage. And in that moment, Jesus endures and we are blessed. And it's incredible. It was the purification of, the only way that I am pure, the only way that you're pure, because we've already established so far that none of us is doing our best all the time. We're just not. I mean, it's very narcissistic to think that we're always doing our best every moment of every day. In fact, fact, it's not narcissistic, it's delusional. No one does that, right? Right? But in order for us to be pure before a perfect and holy God, the only way that that was going to happen was God said, I'm going to fix it for you, man. I'm going to fix it for you, daughter, and I'm going to pour myself into you. And then after that, he sat down at the right hand of majesty, the Father in heaven. 
So where is Jesus now? He sits at the right hand of the majesty of the Father in heaven. And he's waiting for the day in which the Father goes, it's time, let's go back. And then everything's done. Jesus' mission in the world was to reconcile, to bring us back together with him, with the Father. So let's take a look at it in 2 Corinthians 5 because he gives you a mission after you've been changed. This is it. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. So I hear a lot of people today, especially kind of anti-theists online, talking about how Christianity is just a social construct, right? And the idea behind it essentially is this, is that you become Christian because you grew up in a Christian nation or you grew up Christian because you had a Christian family. I did not grow up in a Christian family. My parents were not Christians. They were not followers of Jesus or any religion at all. We were essentially secular in every way. Here's what you need to know. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, when I first came across this passage, when I first came across this passage, here's what I learned. A pastor sat me down and said, Mike, this phrase in Christ means followers of Jesus who have surrendered their life to Christ, right? So if you have surrendered your life to Christ, what's happened? There is a new creation. You have become something different than you were. You are a new creation. Watch this. The old things are gone and something new is now here. But the problem is this when you grow up in an environment like I did, and I know my story is not the same as yours, but I know that many of you have past traumas and terrible things that have happened to you as well. So I grew up in a very violent home. My father was physically and emotionally abusive to us. He was just a, he was just a, uh, a Vietnam vet who never got his mind back, essentially is what it was. And so he would do terrible things to us. And what happens if you grow up in an environment like that, or if you were in a relationship that was super abusive like that, here's what happens. And I think this is actually a good thing because I think it's the Lord's way of helping us not just go insane in our minds, but, but we develop defense mechanisms, right? We develop these ways of coping. And so what we do is we realize, we think to ourselves, oh, this is normal. Like when you grow up in that kind of environment, you think this is normal until you get out of that environment and then you start seeing other people and you realize, man, this is not normal. So when I first became a Christian, this old thing is gone. This new thing is here. This new thing, when it came, when the spirit of God came on the inside of me, when, when I started walking with Jesus, Man, I saw my life in a completely different way. I realized that all of this broken stuff that I was doing before, all of my own sinful bad choices in response to the wickedness that was uh, done in my life and my own bad wickedness as well, all of that, man, I didn't want it anymore. But for some of us, watch this, the old has gone. And some of you are looking at that right now and you're going, I am in Christ. I know I've accepted Jesus, but I got a whole lot of the old in me still. Here's why you have a whole lot of the old. Because when things get hard in the moment, like right now, like in the present, when things get really stressful for you, you go back to what is most comfortable, even if what is most comfortable is dysfunctional and painful. And so what you do is the cross has taken all of that shame and all that guilt and all that wickedness and buried it. And what you and I do is we come back and we go, this old has gone. Well, know what? I'm gonna go dig it up again. So we start digging it up and carrying it with us. It's dead in your life. You need to know that. Jesus killed it on the cross, but you keep digging it up because it's comfortable, even if it's dysfunctional. And some people can't realize that sometimes we'd rather be in more pain than take the risk to become something that Jesus wants us to be. God wants you to be more than you are. You are always changing. You're never the same person. Past is the past, the future is the future, but you're either becoming like Jesus or you're becoming less like Jesus. And sometimes when he calls you to do something big in your life, you get scared and you run back and you start digging up dead bones. You start putting them on. The old has gone, you guys. The new is here. He's given you a new life in Christ. And then, 
not only has he given you a new life in Christ, he's given you a new mission as well. Verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you see that? So as soon as you become a follower of Jesus and you are reconciled, right? What is, what is the number one, what is the number one reason on divorce certificates that people cite for the divorce? Irreconcilable differences. It means we just can't get along anymore. And essentially, that's where we were with the father before Jesus came into the world. And Jesus said, no, 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 I'm going to take this, these irreconcilable differences that you have, the way in which you look at each other and you can no longer stand each other. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take those things and I'm going to reconcile them. I'm going to make them whole again. I'm going to take two who are apart and I'm going to bring them back and I'm going to make them one again. All this is from God. God does this. This is why you don't need to be afraid to be bold in your faith because the outcome is not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon the father, Right? This is why you don't need to be afraid of your spiritual life because the outcome is not dependent upon you. The outcome is dependent upon the Father, right? And so watch this. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So, so God, we have, we have a relationship now with the Father, but it's through Christ. And then he gives us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciled the world to himself in Christ. Watch this. Not counting people's sins against them. What does that mean? It means that our strategy for the last 50 years has been really flawed. It means the way that we talk about the gospel to people has been really flawed. For many people, what we've done is the church, because this is not Bible stuff. It's not in the Bible. This is culture. This is Christian culture that's just got deformed over time, right? Here's what we said. We're gonna try to be like Jesus. And so we're gonna try to follow the rules, try to follow this. So what we do is we approach non-Christians and we say, hey, you have to fix some things in your life before you come. Stop sleeping around. Stop living with whoever you're living with. Stop drinking too much. Stop being sexually immoral. Stop identifying with the wrong things. You gotta do these things. You gotta do, if you do these things, then you can come to the church and get Jesus. Wait, what? Come to me all who are broken and heavy laden and weighed down, right? This is what Jesus said. Look at this. And the gospel says, God said, I'm gonna reconcile the world to him in Christ. How's he gonna do that? By not counting men's sins against them. We don't major on the behavior. We're not trying to create better moral people. That's not the gospel's point. Better morality comes from a life surrendered to Jesus. That's what it is. Not trying harder and doing better. Look at this. And watch this. He's committed to us the message of reconciliation. You see that? If people are going to be reconciled to the gospel today, it's not going to be because I'm doing it alone. It's gonna be because we have the message of reconciliation. He said, once you become a follower of Jesus, your mission now is to make followers of Jesus. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to watch this. Just to make it abundantly clear in verse 20, he says it like this. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. What is an ambassador? A representative on behalf of someone else. That's what you are. So when you're at the kitchen sink, and your kids are driving you crazy. Mommy, 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 mommy. It's insanity. I, I, I feel for you. Uh, your hero's amazing, but you're still an ambassador. So when you turn around, you're like, <laughs> you're an ambassador of Jesus in that moment. When you're on I-4 and everybody is crazy, this is, I'm preaching to myself right now. When you're on I-4 and you're going crazy because people are just dumb and don't know how to drive, and they're all from foreign places that I don't even, like New Hampshire. You know, like, like just, like, you know, it's like, 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 we're ambassadors for Jesus no matter where we go and who we are. 
We're ambassadors for Jesus. We're ambassadors for Jesus. And he, watch this, as though he were making his appeal through us. God is making his appeal to the world through you, through your life. You have a mission. People, some people will come and say, Pastor Mike, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. This. It doesn't matter if you do this as a lawyer. It doesn't matter if you do this as an architect, a mom, a student. Gosh, I hope you're supposed to do all of that. Every one of us is called to ministry. Very few people are called to ministry inside the church. And it's not glamorous. But you are called to ministry inside the world. Absolutely. There's opportunities. So in verse 15, John is talking about Jesus here. And look what he says. John testified concerning him. So, so this John right here is not the John writing the book that we're reading right now. This is John the Baptist. And the role of John the Baptist was to prepare the way for the Messiah to come, Jesus. What you need to know about John the Baptist is that he was the cousin of Jesus. And he was born about four months before Jesus was born. That's important for in a moment. John testified concerning Jesus. That's him. He cried out, this is the one that I spoke about when I said, he, Jesus, who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Gobbly gook when you first look at it, right? All right, so what does it mean? Well, the first thing I want you to see <coughs> is that there is a moment where John says these words. He's baptizing people uh, into repentance. This is an Old Testament baptism. Yes, they had baptism in the Old Testament. Old Testament baptism. What you need to know about John the Baptist is he was here to prepare the way for Jesus to come. He is the last, even though he's found in the New Testament, he is the last of the Old Testament prophets. The last one. The last one because in a moment, Jesus is going to come and this is what happened. He's baptizing people in the Jordan River and he's baptizing them in the repentance, repentance, repent of your sin, turn from your sin, turn away from your wickedness. And he sees Jesus come over the hillside. And in that moment, he sees Jesus come over the hillside the spirit must speak to him because he immediately identif like, identifies him, knows who he is. He's never met him before personally, right? But in that moment, he sees Jesus coming over the hill and he turns to everybody who's gathered and he says, behold, look, the lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world, who's come to reconcile the world to the father. I can't imagine what that was like. Jesus comes down the hill and John's doing the appropriate thing, the reasonable thing. He looks at Jesus and he goes, I, you know, I, I am not worthy to baptize you. So you baptize me, Jesus. And Jesus goes, no, no, you baptize me. And he goes, Jesus, not, baptize me, you're God. You know, and Jesus is like, I'm God, listen to me, right? <laughs> <coughs> baptize me. So he baptizes him uh, in that moment. But look at what he says. He spoke about, he's the one that I spoke about when I said, he, Jesus, who comes after me. So in other words, he was born after me. John was born first. Has surpassed me, why? Because I'm just the last of the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He is God. He has surpassed me because he was before me. What does before me mean? Well, he was already born after him. So what does that mean? He lived before he was born. He's pointing to the fact that Jesus was God. So John the Baptist prepares this way and it's in this incredible, amazing moment. Verse 16 says it like this. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. So out of the fullness, out of the character that dwells with Jesus, who he is, this person. And we're gonna look at some of these characters in just a second. But grace in place of grace. Another way of saying this, probably the better way of saying it is 
Grace upon grace upon grace. In other words, grace constantly coming to you. God brings you grace over and over and over again, an unending, constant flow of grace into your life. (coughs) But the fullness of Jesus. Well, what is Jesus for us in his fullness? He's God for us. He's man for us. He is generous for us. He's loving for us. He's kind for us. He is truthful for us. He's loving towards us. He is, lo- he is trustworthy for us. He's faithful for us. He's caring for us. He's forgiving for us. He's all of these things. But none of those things does John pick out as the most important thing. He picks out grace upon grace upon grace. This is the most important thing that he brings to you right now in your life. So let's break two ideas that get confused in a lot of Christians' minds. Number one is the concept of mercy. Mercy and grace are not the same thing. In fact, they're the opposite ends of things. Mercy. Mercy is defined as not getting what you deserve. In other words, this is our way of avoiding punishment. Here's what mercy's like. <coughs> you go to the judge and you're guilty of the crime. And the judge goes, you are guilty of the crime. But now I release you on your own recognizance. You get to go. You're set free. That's mercy. You're not getting what you deserve to get. Now, grace is different. It's much more beautiful. Grace is defined as being given what we do not deserve. So grace is when you are over and abundantly nice to someone who's not a nice to you. Grace is when you attribute the good motives to someone, even if you're, sure, you're not sure they have good motives. Grace is giving what does not, is not, and should not be deserved. And it's a beautiful picture. So here's how this kind of thing, this whole thing ends. Out of his fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace, grace flowing, overflowing, and overflowing into our lives. <coughs> For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Look up on the screen. If you guys don't get grace and truth right, this is why Jesus came with grace and truth, in one in hand, one in each hand. If we don't get grace and truth right in our life, we'll get our spiritual lives all confused. All right, let's take a look at this diagram. So the first one I want you to look at is license. High grace and low truth. What's wrong with this? What's wrong with a person who has high grace in their life and low truth? Well, you're not helpful. You're not helpful. This is the person that sees their friend and they're making really bad decisions in their life. And when they're making these bad decisions in their life, you love them, but you don't tell them how to actually get out of the same bad decisions they're making. So you're leaving them broken in their broken circumstances to repeat the pattern over and over again because you're afraid to speak the truth. So you're high grace people. You're like, oh, I love you so much. You're gonna get through this, but you don't actually help them out of that. Next one, <coughs> low grace, low truth. This is a pretty miserable person. You don't really care about what's true, what's not true. You don't really have a lot of grace for anybody either. You're just kind of like, blah. You know, nobody wants to be around that person. Next one, this is probably the worst one of all. This is what we've done wrong for the last 50 years, by the way. This is the low grace, high truth people. You know why this is the worst one? Because these people actually look more Christian than you do. They read their Bibles every day, maybe twice. They have morning devotions, night devotions. They've taken their scriptures and they've read it and they've highlighted it and read. They've got little notes in the margins. Not that everybody who does that is a legalist. Some people are closing their Bible right now. (laughs) But what I'm saying is, these people are really high truth people. They're all about, we gotta tell them the truth. We gotta say it the right way but they're super low grace. And when you're high truth and you're low grace, even if you're right, no one cares because you've not honored them. This is what grace church has always tried to be. We're high grace, 
high truth people. What does that mean? We're gonna tell you what's true because we have to be faithful to the scriptures because the scriptures are where we get our truth about God. If I'm just telling you a bunch of stuff that I've made up in my mind, then your opinion's equal to mine. But if I'm telling you the inspired word of God's truth, then you should listen to that as I do too. So we're, ha- we're gonna give people high truth because that's gonna give them a new direction for their life. That's gonna give them help out of the problems that they're going through. <clears throat> but simultaneously, we're gonna realize that no matter how much we try, how much they try, we're never gonna get it right. We're always gonna only approximate better things, but we're never gonna get it right. We're always gonna fall down. And you know what? We're gonna expect that. And therefore, when they do fall down and when we do fall down, we're not gonna crucify each other. We're not gonna yell at each other for that. We're not gonna point fingers at each other and go, you should have done better. We're gonna expect, hey, you blew it. So you moved a little bit in this direction away from Jesus. Let's start taking next steps toward Christ. again. we're gonna start heading this direction. That's what high grace, high truth people do. And guys, listen, if you are in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been given a mission by God. And that is to reconcile the world to Christ once again, to bring people back into a relationship with Jesus. You are an ambassador on behalf of God the Father in the name of the Son. And because of that, you have to be high grace, high truth people because Jesus came with grace and truth. Not one or the other, not some, a little of one and a little of the other, but he came with both of these. And this is what made Jesus so compelling. If you are talking to people who are far from God and you are a high grace person and a high truth person, you will talk like no one else has talked to them ever before. And it will be compelling. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize, God, that you have truly uh, transformed our hearts and our lives. You've given us something new. Forgive us when we go and dig up the old, comfortable, dysfunctional things. Forgive us when we go back to those broken down cisterns and wells. But Father, (coughs) instead, help us to be able to trust you more. Let us not be afraid of what you're creating in us. Let us not be afraid of becoming more of who you want us to be. Instead, God, let us realize that whenever we are in the center of your will, we're in the safest place we could possibly be. So God, work through us. Work through us in in our hearts, in our families, in our lives, and in our friendships and with the people that were in our sphere of influence. Let us be people, God, who are ambassadors all the time because the stakes are high, God. We want people to know and love you so they can have eternal life. It's in your name we pray, amen.